My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Um, my apologies for the amount of time it's been between releasing episodes. Um, this year seems to be going even more ridiculously fast than the other ones and between various things I just haven't had the chance to kind of sit down and record. Well, I suppose that's a mild lie. I have had the motivation to sit down and record. I've just I've been busy doing other things and it's just kind of fallen by the wayside. But I thought I would come back with this episode and it's something of a Netflix special um, because there was a couple of films that came out on Netflix over the past couple of months which I think were both quite interesting for various reasons. Um, both science fiction films and I thought they were going to be, it would make a worthy episode to have a look at them both. So Netflix, I think it has become a byword for quality. In the early days of streaming services, it easily trumped Amazon Prime, which had a kind of VHS quality stream compared to Netflix's gorgeous 1080p 5.1 sound. And quality matters to me a lot. If I want to watch a film, I want the best viewing experience. And from the early, very early on, I found this online to be Netflix. Yet to me, there was a nagging issue with Netflix, and indeed, it was quite a major one. And that was simply content. It had a decent selection of films, and at $5.99 the price point was just fine. But to me it felt a little lacking. I wanted the same, exact same amount of content I could get from Love Film, and to be honest, although I pay for Netflix, I found my usage wasn't all that much. Then came the announcement they would begin making their own content. And at the time, I was way more surprised than really I should have been. I've no idea why, but for some reason I thought it would be cheap crap. Possibly my head was still wedded to the idea that an internet provider of content could not make its own programs. And it may have been in retrospect that it was simply not ready for the future or not visionary enough to see the direction things were going in. And along came House of Cards and off we went. Very quickly, Netflix began throwing out programs left, right and centre. A frankly overwhelming array of superheroes, documentaries and occasional films. Now it's fair to say Netflix TV series have been on the evidence provided mostly very good. There have only been one that I've watched that I've truly hated and that was Stranger Things. But for sure, the likes of Stranger Things, Making a Murderer, Jessica Jones have become the shows to talk about and dissect. And what's more, Netflix does the best thing of all. It gives you them all at once. It truly understands and feeds our box set addictions. It's what we can only dream of. And quite rightly, we have come to love the idea of a night in, bottle of wine and some Netflix to plough through. And while its television output has been impressive, its film slate has been less so. Now for sure, this most certainly needs to be divided between fiction films and documentaries. Its documentary output has produced some real gems. Get Me Roger Stone, Icarus, The Square, and Strong Island in particular, but its fiction films have been a mixed bag. Beasts of No Nation was a solid start, but there's been too many duds and outright stinkers to mention. And I know this sounds a little bit petty, but in a way I don't think my motivation to watch many Netflix films has been helped by the fact that the cover art used on the app makes them look like the kind of images you see on inspirational quotes memes on Facebook. And yes, I know you shouldn't judge a film by a crap poster, but for some reason they just have an air of cheapness about them. That being said, Netflix has offered a home to films struggling to find distribution. Spectral was a 70 million science fiction film produced by Legendary Pictures, 
Originally slated for a theatrical release, it ended up being acquired by Netflix. In truth, it would be hard to imagine Spectral would have gone down that well at the box office. 70 million is a large budget, but with no star to speak of. And let's be honest, a kind of B-movie premise, the potential for a rather expensive flop would have been quite high. So Netflix would seem a logical home. No need for expensive distribution and marketing. Spectral could be its own thing, devoid of the stigma of being labelled a financial failure, if indeed that would have been the case. And is instead allowed to be its own thing, waiting to be discovered and judged on the merits as a film. And I like this model. And Netflix has acquired other films that have failed to gain theatrical distribution. The French film Divines was an award winner at Cannes, but could not be find a distribution anywhere. Enter Netflix and the film was made available the world over. Again, no expensive marketing, no jostling for screen time in the overcrowded art house cinemas. It simply appeared on Netflix and was instantly made available to millions of subscribers, gaining far more of a potential audience than it had if it ran for a gauntlet of trying to find distribution and finding itself on an ever-increasingly pile of films that will never see the light of day. In theory then, Netflix has the potential to be a valuable outlet for films that would otherwise never be seen, and I consider this to be a good thing. And I would like to see a section on Netflix dedicated to this very thing. Now, of course, there could be a potential for exploitation with Netflix essentially offering peanuts to producers in order to get their films seen. Streaming is, after all, a touchy subject. If you haven't worked out how much people are going to be paid and in the context of music, in which artists often receive a close to a pittance from the likes of Spotify, but there does seem to be a scope for a genuinely exciting way of providing an alternative outlet for films. There has, of course, been a backlash to Netflix. However, it is hardly surprising. Naturally, there is money to be made in the theatrical and home video markets. Theatre chains hate Netflix, and one not need be a genius to understand why. Staying at home and watching films on a subscription service means less income for them if they are having their premiere on the likes of Netflix and Amazon and not in the theatre. And of course, the ideal place to experience a film is, of course, the cinema, I believe. But this is far from practical for many of us from cost to comfort to simply finding the time. A trip to the cinema isn't necessarily the easiest convenient things for many to do, and most films are watched in the home, and it makes perfect sense. Don't forget, the home video market was seen as a direct threat to the theatrical run, just had television been before, but I did suspect at the time that the hostility to Netflix was something a little bit different. Now, although Netflix costs, you could in theory watch a Netflix original film as many times as you want as part of your subscription. This in turn creates a kind of illusion that the content you are watching is free. Free translates as inferior, and when Netflix began producing its own films, I got the distinct impression this was the perception. Then there was the issue of not having a theatrical release. No matter how limited, Netflix films would not be eligible for most award ceremonies, notably the Oscars. There was some noise about Idris Elba receiving a nomination for Beasts of No Nation. He shouldn't have been, but the company had to circumnavigate arcane rules, giving these films short-lived theatrical runs to ensure they are eligible for awards. And it's working. They are, here, they are now receiving Oscar nominations, eight this year alone. The idea that there is a quality gap, especially in relation to documentary output, would appear to be closing, with Mudbound in particular receiving a great deal of critical praise and award nods. Streaming is a relatively new medium, and it's doing its own thing, and I am certain that like television, like home video, streaming will fit into the model of consuming films, and will simply become part of the expected norm. 
I don't see Netflix releasing films in the theatre and then streaming a few months later. It seems to want to be very much its own ecosystem and I have no issue with this. And I suspect the industry will simply come on board, no matter how begrudgingly, to this model. Netflix, as I see it, is going to be the biggest player in the entertainment industry. I am a Sky subscriber and quite frankly I rather feel that Sky is losing ground. Other than the football, its entertainment slate is decidedly poor. Its original programming has for the most part been weak and its film channels do decidedly devoid of decent content. Other than the latest blockbusters which I have real no real desire to watch. Streaming services such as Filmstruck, BFI and dedicated MGM and of course Amazon Prime cater to my taste far more. The content is overwhelming to Greek, but make no mistake, home video is where my heart is. I still love buying Blu-rays and maintain a physical media collection and nothing will ever replace my weekly trip to Fop in Manchester to gather up an arm full of Blu-rays. And with likes of Criterion, Arrow, Master Cinema, I don't see myself slowing down anytime soon. So, back to Netflix. Do you know what it is? to make your dreams come true, Leo. I've seen you working downstairs. You're a good man. As a barman, you should not punch the fucking customers. I don't deserve you, Leo. I love you so much, but you don't know me. I want to know what the deal is with this crazy bartender. Sure you want our help with this? This kind of thing hurts my reputation. Daddy's gotta go. Oh, no soda. Your girlfriend has secrets. You lost me? Take a hint and fuck off. Not very talkative. <laughs> Something's going on. You need to maintain a sense of humor, babe. Now, for everything that I have said about Netflix, I have to be honest and say that I'm yet to watch a Netflix original feature film and be entirely convinced that I have actually watched something that is all that good. Beast of No Nation was good, but overall, I've not been blown away by anything. And over the past two months, we have seen two Netflix films that have caught my attention. Duncan Jones's Mute and Alex Garland's Annihilation. And of course, the latter not necessarily being a Netflix original production, although I will get on to that. And what we have here is a tale of two Netflix. Now, I must state that I'm glad Netflix has been part of giving two mid-budget genre films a safe haven for filmmakers to exercise their creative talents. Yet sadly, in the case of Mute, this faith has been very much misplaced. Now, Duncan Jones, on the evidence provided, is a very nice man, humble, funny, and I would really enjoy the way in which he interacts with people on Twitter. He's also a very lucky man. His father was one of the most iconic artists of all time, and he gets to make films. Now, cynics might suggest that there's a direct relationship between who Jones' father is and the fact that he is working in the film industry today. Now, his debut, Moon, was met with mostly positive to quite glowing reviews. And in truth, I could not care less if he got to make it on the basis of who his father was. What's he supposed to do? Not have a career that he wants for the sake of not being accused of nepotism. There was one thing, though. I really thought Moon was a rather average film. 
I kind of liked it, but ultimately I wasn't all that bothered by it. Then came source code, and I recall seeing it, but I don't seem to remember being in any way, shape or form overly impressed with it. And after that we had Warcraft. Well, it was big in China, which I suppose is one thing we can say about it. And it has left Jones in rather an interesting place. On the one hand, he's a semi-failed big-budget filmmaker, and on the other, a quite possibly overrated mid-budget filmmaker. Now, regardless of what I think about his films, quite clearly he has an audience and people see talent in him. And then we have Mute. It is a film that he has been struggling to make for years, apparently because no studio in their right mind would go near it. And in Netflix, Jones found a willing collaborator. And good, I'm glad they are taking punts on difficult films. Sadly, however, it seems this faith has been utterly misplaced, as Mute is the worst type of passion project there is. In short, it is a complete and utter disaster of mythic proportions. Passion projects often produce some of the most mental and brilliant films you will ever see. David Lean would have spent his entire life making Lawrence Arabia if he were given the chance, and the end result is arguably one of the best films ever made. Darren Aronofsky's made Noah, and I'm completely down with anything that Ken Ham feels that he needs to protect his wife from seeing, and I can safely say I have never sat in a cinema and been so utterly perplexed, ranging from utter horror to wide-eyed amazement at a film. Needless to say, Noah was met with a fair share of derision. However, all concerned deserve credit on allowing that insane masterpiece to make it to cinemas. The Passion Project is therefore a tricky thing to pull off, and I rather wonder if those hawking them around become so obsessed with getting them made, they forget to actually ask if it should be made in the first place. Now, time and time again, Mute was rejected by studios, and rightly so. As a screenplay, it is atrocious. The story involves the titular mute Stan Skarsgård searching for his long-lost love in a techno-noir Berlin. Whilst this uninteresting and dull tale takes place, two black market surgeons, Paul Rod and Justin Threw, who patch up gangsters, and oh, Justin Threw is actually a paedophile. Somehow these two stories collide, only you won't care, and here's why. The first fundamental issue with this film is Stan Skarsgård is mute. There is no reason, literally no reason, why he is a mute. At no time does his muteness serve the story, and I defy anyone to offer a reasonable explanation as to why, other than the fact that Jones wanted to write a mute character. Let's break it down even further. The only way this character impairment works is if it is absolutely essential to the story. Let's say in this futuristic society, being a mute comes with some form of social penalty. Nope, it doesn't. In this film, that is not the case. Is it a case of being a mute essentially? Is the fact that he is mute essential to the story because he holds some piece of information that he can't actually say? Well, no, because he can write with his hands, as we are seeing. Is being mute endearing and tragic? No, certainly not. It has something vaguely to do with his religion. He is Amish and therefore rejects modern technologies or something like that. Nonetheless, this is as boring a character as can be. His motivation to find the woman he loves, and quite frankly I'm not even sure why he's in love with her in the first place. Indeed, everything about Mute feels so superficial and perfunctory. Characters do things just because the script says so. And herein lies the key issue of the film. It is the script, because on a fundamental level, the story is simply not engaging. 
And of course, people have been clamouring to compare it to Brain Runner. And I would contest that Blade Runner has a fairly flimsy love story at its core. I never quite what saw. I never quite saw what Deckard saw in Rachel and what Rachel saw in Deckard. However, the film works because of Roy Batty and the bigger films that it, and the bigger theme story it explores. And you can forgive its weaker elements and appreciate it as far more as a whole. Mute has nothing absolutely nothing of which to contemplate and consider it is a hollow world polluted by hollow characters and running parallel to this mute finding his girlfriend nonsense is the frankly insane story of cactus bill and duck played by the aforementioned paul roll and justin through sorry paul rudd sorry quite clearly jones likes the spool trilogy by william gibson judging by the dialogue these two spout yet these two would never fit in the sprawl trilogy because they are so utterly terrible. And if you don't find yourself caring about Mute Boy staring into the screen in awful bafflement, and if you really could not care less about the Mute storyline, these two will have you staring at the screen in utter bafflement. The story goes something like this. Bill wants to get his daughter away and needs some forged documents. Duck is a paedophile and Bill knows this full well. Yet somehow they are still friends and Duck really wants to kidnap Bill's daughter some stuff happens and Mute Boy turns up. If this sounds odd, this is because it is very fucking odd. Now understand, I can handle challenging materials, but this feels so tonally obscure and jarring, not because it's so wrong in the context of what Duck is, but what he's doing in the film in the first place. Mute is confused as, as it wants to be. One minute Bill and Duck are on the brink of battering each other, because of what Duck is. The next day off celebrating in town doing stupid stuff that will lead to utter ruin for no reason than the fact that the script says so. Nothing in Mute has believable motivations. The simple, the characters simply don't work as characters. You can love and hate characters at the same time, but in Mute, I have never been so consciously aware that I have not cared about a single person I have screen, seen on screen. Not a single person in this film is interesting and therefore I found it impossible to actually care where it was going. Which leads me to where I think Jones is with the film. I think he wanted to make a companion piece to Moon and yes Sam Rockwell does appear in it. Ergo it seems what he was doing was trying to explore the morality of the world that we see in Moon. And in a way, that is quite interesting. What type of society would allow what goes on in Moon to happen? How would how corrupt and immoral a place would that, would that be? And I think that this was an attempt by Jones to explore this. How does this society work? What goes on within it? Yet Mute fails because its central story is so unbelievably dull. And there is another critical issue with the film also. I don't think it even needs to be a science fiction film. And no, I don't think that the point is, it seems more of a case like he liked Moon and he wanted to make another science fiction film. And there we have it. And again, we must go back to Blade Runner. The reason those two films now work is because they've, there is a very specific conceived world that has an actual resonance, or at least it does with me. And Jones feels like he's trying to create his version of the future and has forgotten that neon cityscapes look pretty, but unless you do something with them, they are empty CGI shells that have little going for them other than the fact that we're supposed to like them because apparently that's what science fiction is now. Jones is wrong. Mute is nothing short of a disaster of a film. 
I would go so far to say it is one of the worst films I have ever seen. And indeed, when I think about it, I cannot name anything I have seen in recent memory that comes close to how utterly awful this turgid mess is. Nothing in the film has weight. It elicits no emotion, no feelings, no wonder. It is as vapid and as dull as can possibly be imagined. And here is the thing. And here is the thing. I don't actually hate Mute because there is nothing in it to really elicit any emotion from me whatsoever. It is just awful. We know it was stuck in development hell for years and there is clearly a reason for this and sadly it has left me very conflicted. If the industry is going to be so dismissive of Netflix and ban it from the pretense fest like Cannes and whatnot then I love the idea of there being a safe haven for films that might have struggled to have been made getting made. What better way of showing the world what they are missing out on? Yet Mute is not this film. Mute is a film that wasn't made by anyone else for a reason and it pains me to say that I think it might have been made on Duncan James's name alone. Jones has an audience, a, a base if you will, and sure despite the naysayers, Warcraft, Warcraft did make money and has an audience. Yet I rather feel we are backing the wrong horse here. And yes every director has a couple of duds in their filmography, but for me Jones has yet to really make anything that would lead me to believe there's a kind of hidden genius hidden away in there. And of course I may be wrong, I would suspect in the wake of Mute, Jones might find it slightly harder to get himself back into the mainstream. And certainly, directors have had their careers stalled, or indeed completely tarnished forever for a lot worse than Mute. Can you describe its form? No. Start from the beginning. What do you think I do when you're away? You think I'm out in the garden pining, looking up at the sky? <laughs> Why aren't you here? I gotta leave a day early. here. Let me see him. He was extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. So on to Annihilation. Now, Alex Garland is a writer-director who I have had many issues with over the course of his career. It started with 28 Days Later. Now, I really enjoyed the film for two-thirds, when quite frankly it became utterly ridiculous, and yes, I know it's a zombie film. But what infuriated me was the whole descent into madness angle. The idea that the soldiers at the end of the film would have gone so insane felt as if Garden was simply trying to remake Apocalypse Now, and it didn't need it. Those zombies ran very fast and it was utterly terrifying. And yes, of course, I know, as always, men are the real monsters after all. But next came Sunrise, and again, more madness. 
in a situation that didn't require anything of the sorts, the basic premise of the film was enough. And I rather got the impression that as a screenwriter, Garland was getting in the way of his own stories with some kind of need to insert dramatic situations when they simply were not required. And again, I felt he was making a point that man was the real monster. And to be honest with you, it was beginning to wear thin with me. 2010's Never Let Me Go was my film of the year. And Garland crafted what I felt was a beautifully haunting tale. And like all great science fiction, took everyday concepts and repackaged them into a thought-provoking and deeply moving experience. It is a film that I have never watched again, and I don't honestly know that I will be able to. And this is not anything to say about the film's perceived quality. It's just the older I get, the more its themes resonate with me, and I'm scared to go back to it. 2012's Dread saw Garland step into the world of comic movie adaption. Having said that before, he was deeply influenced too by 2000 AD. Dread is a type of comic book movie that was made by a fan for the fans, and it's one of the best of its time. With no pointless backstory or origin nonsense, we are treated to today in the life of Dread, and it is utterly brilliant, violent, funny, and thoroughly entertaining. Dread should have been a bigger success, instead, it seems destined for cult status. I'm just glad it exists. In 2015, we had his directional debut the mesmerising Ex Machina, arguably in my opinion one of the finest science fiction films in years. To me it felt like everything that I had liked about Garland's career to date, yet the film never lost sight like his other ones had done, arguably in my opinion one of the finest science fiction films in years. As a writer and filmmaker, I felt that he did justice to his work that possibly other directors had not done up until that point. There is an atmosphere to Ex Machina that I don't necessarily feel is there in his other work. The dancing scene straddles comedy in a form of horror in a matter of moments. The fear of technology and its implications are fully realised before our eyes. Our headlong rush towards a new technological utopia seems unnecessary. Ex Machina reminds us there could be complications and indeed huge implications of this. Ex Machina received an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay, and deservedly so. It is a modern classic and manages to improve in every viewing. So three years later, we arrive at Annihilation. Now, early buzz for the film was indeed positive, a five-star Empire review to boot, although in fairness, that was not really the best barometer. Now, I have to confess, I wanted to love this film, but quite quickly, my expectations were tempered. This is a nitpick but I don't think Natalie Portman was right for this film. And this has nothing to do with her as an actress. She is one of the best working today, and her performance is not bad. However, I don't think she sold the physicality needed to make this character utterly convincing. And ultimately, I began to struggle to fully buy into the reality of the film. Now, there is an argument to be made, and that one would I fully endorse, that Annihilation is not a straight science fiction action film, and it most certainly isn't, and therefore the role doesn't need a Ripley-esque figure. But Portman just didn't seem right for the part. The way she held a gun seemed awkward, her movement a little forced, and her uniform a little ill-fitting. To Billy Blunt, she just didn't seem the right person for the job. Her role requires a mixture of sensitivity and physicality, with the latter not what I would associate with Portman. And to be fair, this is a film with two very distinct tones. Whereas her contemporaries, such as Scarlett Johansson and Jennifer Lawrence, have mastered the action heroine role, I don't think it's Portman's realm. Again, I must stress, this is not a bad performance. It just didn't quite sell with me. 
And there is most certainly a feminist angle throughout this film as the all-female team venture into this rather wonderful forbidden zone. And herein lay another issue that I had with the film. It doesn't really establish any logical reason why anyone would travel into the zone in the film. We are expected to believe that a group of scientists, all-female, would not only go, but actually volunteer for what is clearly statistically a suicide mission. All of them are being overseen by a particularly mean Jennifer Jason Lee. Now, of course, I have no issue with an all-female group, but what I do have an issue is with stupidity. Why would they do it? And yet, as I'm being picky, but really, why go somewhere that is clearly going to result in your death? Are these mere nitpicks? Well, yes, possibly, but the whole point of the film is to get into the Forbidden Zone, or the Shimmer, as it's called. And of course, we need to and of course, when we do, we, need, we begin to find out what went wrong with all the other missions inside. Now, for sure, Annihilation does a lot of things right. It feels like a good, hard science fiction film, and it plays with its concepts in some imaginative and genuinely freakish ways. Whatever the fuck that dog-bear thing was, I was genuinely scared. And indeed, inside the Shimmer, there was a palpable sense that I genuinely had no idea what was going to happen next. The film throws some frankly odd body shock moments, eerie stuff with plants growing, and of course the aforementioned screaming dog thing. I was spooked, but I'd also been in this world before, I felt. JG Ballard's The Crystal World was one reference, Tarkovsky's Stalker and its source material Roadside Picnic another. The Thing also came to mind, as well as The Wizard of Al Oz on Acid, and of course Aliens with all its gun-wielding militarism. Of course, I don't mind being reminded of stuff that I like, but possibly Annihilation f flatters to deceive to a degree. It has some genuinely interesting things going on, and I will most certainly want to watch it again, but I liked it rather than loved it when I really wanted to think more of it. I felt I was supporting the film more than I was actually enjoying it, and when I say support, this is because I really want more films like Annihilation. It isn't an all guns blazing affair, it's measured and it, makes you, and it makes you think about bigger things such as loss and how we cope in these situations. Its pacing is also quite bold, this is a slow film that lets you absorb the environment and think about what is going on. One need only watch the abomination Alien Covenant to see far too often science fiction films descend into mere scenarios to build fights around. I personally don't like it. I want measured and thoroughly interesting science fiction that will draw me in. Annihilation does this. It is a beautiful film. And Garland and Rob, director of photography Rob Hardy have created a visually arresting piece. I could literally watch it for hours. The film's alien world felt weird and unique. Yet despite all this, Annihilation left me a little cold. It's a good film. It's an interesting one. It's just a little bit so-so. It requires patience and it wants you to absorb it. But there's something strangely lacking. Something isn't quite there for me with Annihilation, yet I have an overwhelming urge to see it again. And indeed, with time it might be something of a classic for me. We shall see. And for the moment, I'm also happy that Netflix picked it up. Mute is a disaster of a film. Annihilation is a daring oddity. Garland is a director, writer of whom I'm interested in. And Annihilation is a worthy addition to his filmography. So overall, between Mute and Annihilation, there is a clear winner here, and I beseech you not to bother with Mute. Don't even think about it, oh it can't be that bad. It truly is. You have been warned. Annihilation is interesting, 
I've heard some people say they hate it. I've heard some people say they love it. I can only urge you to go and see it. It's on Netflix. It's free. So why the hell not? So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. I hope you've enjoyed it. You can find me on Twitter at 24 Frames Cast. You can follow me um, on Facebook. I'm the Tom Jennings looking over the Giants Causeway. And you can also find me on the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can also find me on the Masters of Cinema cast. That is currently um, under a little bit of hiatus. We will be back soon once uh, Joachim has sorted a couple of things out going on in his life. So overall, many thanks for listening and I'll be in contact soon. Thanks. Bye.